This episode of This Mom Loves is brought to you by Couture Candy PTBO, spreading kindness from coast to coast through customizable candy boxes, candy grams, and more. Trust me, they're amazing. Find them at couturecandyptbo.ca. Being kind is sweet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Mom Loves. I am Kate Wynn, a mom, teacher, freelance writer, TV guest, podcaster, and you are listening to episode 53 of the show. Today on This Mom Loves, in my favorite things, I'm going to be sharing three nonfiction books, and my special guest today is a big nonfiction fan, so I thought that would fit perfectly in this episode. Also on the show today in the lifestyle segment, going to be talking about three tips for back to school in these days of COVID-19, whether your kids are returning to school physically, whether they're going to be staying home and doing virtual learning through your school board or some other option, just three things to keep in mind. And my special guest this week is Melissa Grello. She is a co-host of The Social on CTV, as well as a co-founder of the Gender Neutral Club line Mark Designs. And she is going to be here later in the show talking about a whole range of things. So you are going to want to stick around for that. Starting out with three excellent nonfiction books that I would recommend. And the first one is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. And here's what the publisher says. Austin Channing Brown's first encounter with a racialized America came at age seven, when she discovered her parents named her Austin to deceive future employers into thinking she was a white man. Growing up in majority white schools and churches, Austin writes, I had to learn what it meant to love blackness, a journey that led to a lifetime spent navigating America's racial divide as a writer, speaker, and expert helping organizations practice genuine inclusion. In a time when nearly every institution, schools, churches, universities, businesses, claims to value diversity in its mission statement, Austin writes in breathtaking detail about her journey to self-worth and the pitfalls that kill our attempts at racial justice. Her stories bear witness to the complexity of America's social fabric, from black Cleveland neighborhoods to private schools in the middle-class suburbs, from prison walls to the boardrooms at majority white organizations. For readers who have engaged with America's legacy on race through the writing of Tenehisi Coates and Michael Eric Dyson, I'm Still Here is an illuminating look at how white, middle-class evangelicalism has participated in an era of rising racial hostility, inviting the reader to confront apathy, recognize God's ongoing work in the world, and discover how blackness, if we let it, can save us all. I've been doing a ton of reading over the past few months, um, trying to read more work by black authors. I've actually read a lot of fiction, which I've been recommending um, in the last episode and also in a a blog post about books that that I read during the hiatus from the show, but also a lot of nonfiction as well. Um, And a lot of them are very heavy on, you know, history, statistics, very important good information to have. But what I loved about this book for a change is that it's a memoir. It's got that narrative aspect and and her personal stories, which really, really illustrated the prevalence of racism, you know, directly from somebody's point of view. So I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. 
Now, changing topics completely, the next one is called Joy at Work, Organizing Your Professional Life by Marie Kondo and Scott Sonenshine. The publisher says, the workplace is a magnet for clutter and mess. Who hasn't felt drained by wasteful meetings, disorganized papers, endless emails, and unnecessary tasks? These are the modern-day hazards of working, and they can slowly drain the joy from work, limit our chances of career progress, and undermine our well-being. There is another way. Enjoy at Work, best-selling author and Netflix star Marie Kondo and Rice University business professor Scott Sonenshine offer stories, studies, and strategies to help you eliminate clutter and make space for work that really matters. Using the world-renowned KonMari method and cutting-edge research, Joy at Work will help you overcome the challenges of workplace mess and enjoy the productivity, success, and happiness that come with a tidy desk in mind. So obviously you've got to be a Marie Kondo kind of person to be interested in this book, which I am. I'm not totally on board with all of the KonMari method. I still ball my poor socks and I don't thank my belongings for their service before I discard them or anything like that. But I am on board with the idea that your items should bring you joy or at least some sort of valuable functionality or you shouldn't have them. And I do kind of get a high from decluttering and getting rid of things and all of that. The co-author she has this time helps to bring in the business side of things since it is a focus on work. And it's not just about the physical stuff. I mean, still there are some of those, you know, empty everything out and then pick what brings you joy and put it back and that sort of thing. But it's also, you know, for right now your home office as well as your workplace could use that too. But it's also about streamlining your digital documents, your email, streamlining your network, your meetings, and even your work time. So uh, perfect for September, which of course is the new January. As, uh, as we kind of start new things this month. So again, that is Joy at Work, Organizing Your Professional Life. And I don't know if you're like me, if you kind of have memories, you remember where you read a book, but I read this one in the summer um, in the pool and I had started this routine of getting in the tube and walking around the pool, like kind of doing laps inside the pool, but with the book propped on the tube. So it was a great uh, kind of multitasking enjoying my workout while I read. So I think whenever I think of that book, I will be remembering how I did that with it this summer. And the third book I want to recommend, and again, changing subjects completely, is called Finding Freedom, Harry and Meghan and the Making of a Modern Royal Family by Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand. When news of the budding romance between a beloved English prince and an American actress broke, it captured the world's attention and sparked an international media frenzy. But while the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have continued to make headlines, from their engagement, wedding, and birth of their son Archie to their unprecedented decision to step back from their royal lives, few know the true story of Harry and Meghan. For the very first time, Finding Freedom goes beyond the headlines to reveal unknown details of Harry and Meghan's life together, dispelling the many rumors and misconceptions that plague the couple on both sides of the pond. As members of the select group of reporters that cover the British royal family and their engagements, Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand have witnessed the young couple's lives as few outsiders can. With unique access and written with the participation of those closest to the couple, Finding Freedom is an honest, up-close, and disarming portrait of a confident, influential, and forward-thinking couple who are unafraid to break with tradition, determined to create a new path away from the spotlight, and dedicated to bringing a humanitarian legacy that will make a profound difference in the world. So this book, it talks about, uh, in the description about that kind of unprecedented access. So 
In the prologue, it starts out by saying, as a rule, no member of a royal family can officially authorize a biography. But the underlying message that I think you get as the reader is that not only did Harry and Meghan approve, but the authors, already royal reporters, were really given extensive access to sources who were all, you know, given the green light, the go-ahead to talk to them. I love that there was a lot of inside information and details, and as I said, some of it correcting some sort of falsehoods that I had previously read or heard. Definitely, it's an overall favorable portrayal of Harry and Meghan. Some critics have said that the book is very sappy and vivid descriptions of meals and outfits and trivial details. A lot of those critics have been British, and the worst term I think they could find to, to describe the book was that it's too American, which to them uh, I think is quite an insult, but I kind of enjoyed it, getting all those tidbits. And they did present opposing viewpoints to some of Harry and Meghan's decisions, you know, like why, you know, people at the palace would have been against certain things and how they were kind of, you know, going against protocol in, in different situations and that sort of thing. So it's not like it's just all glowing and, and approving of everything that they did. There's a, there's a bit of balance in there too, but... If you're interested at all in the royal family, I would definitely uh, definitely recommend Finding, Finding Freedom by Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durant. If you are looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at This Mom Loves, on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves, and my website is thismomloves.ca, where you will find blog posts on a huge range of lifestyle topics, links to my TV segments about education, and to all of the podcast episodes as well. And if you're looking for something from this episode again, this is number 53. So the parenting world in terms of um, TV segments and online articles and social media and all of that is really, uh, really absorbed in the whole back to school time right now. And as this episode comes out, it's time in Canada for our kids to return to school in one way or another. And, you know, from the teaching perspective, from the parenting perspective with two daughters going back to school, just three tips that I wanted to, to offer to parents. So one is... Rely on trusted sources of information. So whether it's your trustworthy media sources where you're getting information, especially finding one that's local to you and maybe a good provincial one. Um, I mean, the way Fox News is covering back to school might not be relevant if you live in the prairie provinces of Canada. So make sure that you're getting something local, something provincial, and that they're trustworthy uh, media sources. You may, uh, even in your social media, follow certain networks or certain journalists that you know kind of get the scoop and have the facts. Make sure that you're following even information coming directly from your province, directly from your school board. Follow the social media accounts of your child's board and school. Don't just trust when people say, oh, I heard our board is going to do this. Make sure you're just getting it from the source. Facebook groups. See how you feel after you are in a group and absorbing all of the posts. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm in a one teacher Facebook group, and I almost never feel good or even better when I leave having read some posts. It always makes me more anxious. And this was even pre-COVID. A lot of judgments and comparisons and things that shouldn't, shouldn't happen in kindergarten and all that sort of stuff. And so whenever I'm done, I always think, why do I do that to myself? Why do I read that? Because then I get all worked up and I need to just go back to my trusted sources for information. And... Um, you know, even now with speculation, news coming out of another board, even within Ontario, the such and such board says we're going to have to do this at school. It might not impact mine. So I'm trying to just have a little more of a narrow focus so that it's not stressing me out too much. And even when you actually want to chat with somebody about opinions, stop and think, you know, do you trust whether it's your mom, your aunt, your sister, your best friend, that they have good advice 
that they also want what's best for your kids. Because if they do, then those are the kind of people that you want to talk to, even if they disagree with you, but if they have good advice and you know they want what's best. And in terms of parenting experts, there's a whole range out there, lots of great ones, but um, with different philosophies. So you also want to make sure you're kind of following the ones that align with your beliefs. And again, not the ones that necessarily just tell you you're doing everything perfectly, like you need to be challenged a little bit. But if there are parenting experts that you know, you know, believe something way off to one side of where you are on a spectrum, then those might not be the ones that you want to follow. Because if it makes you feel inferior or upsets you to, to see those messages, make sure you're kind of just cleaning up where you're getting your information. Second one, and I know you've heard this before because well-intentioned people are saying this all over the place, do what's best for your family. Now, whether it's staying home, virtual learning, whether it's attending school physically, maybe you've got one child doing one thing, one child doing something else. Um, there are some issues I know parents upset about not being able to switch back and forth. You know, if virtual learning doesn't seem to be your thing. You want to be able to go right back into the classroom the next day or whatever. There are a lot of good answers to why that can't happen. So what I would suggest for that is just commit to a course of action for now and, and see how it plays out. Let your kids be heard, but let the grownups make the choices. Um, now that said, if they are communicating with you what they don't like about a decision, so maybe I don't want to go to school because I have to wear a mask, or if I stay home, I'm going to miss my best friend. You can still try to problem solve around those issues, but while sticking to the big decision. There is no right answer right now. There really isn't nothing's perfect. This will not last forever. And while I won't even get started on the huge inequities out there and the whole idea of we're not all exactly in the same boat, there's a lot of different boats, but I do think that most of our kids are doing some amazing learning and growing through this whole experience and they're going to be okay. Whichever way they are educated this fall, they are still going to turn out fine. So keep that in mind. And the third tip is communicate. And within that, assume good intentions. So as the year begins, you're going to have questions and concerns. Um, make sure that you follow protocol. Start with the teacher. If it's something to do with something going on in class, whether it's virtual or in person, assuming good intentions. Maybe your child comes home and reports something that you thought maybe was a COVID safety issue. Maybe your child is struggling with an aspect of virtual learning. Remember, this is all new to teachers as well. What we did in the spring was way different from actually starting a year intentionally with virtual learning, with some synchronous stuff going on, you know, with teacher and kids all online at the same time. Non-confrontational communication is so good. Ask questions, don't hesitate. I know sometimes parents don't want to bug or annoy, so they kind of stew over something or they just post it on Facebook instead, but honestly just come and ask. And I always say you can never over-communicate if you're keeping things factual and as positive as you can. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, gushy and rainbows, but even just a fact about a concern as opposed to something that's kind of accusatory or whatever. Make those deposits, those bank account deposits into relationships with the, the school staff, whoever's teaching and working with your children. Anytime you can be positive or can kind of, you know, add a little deposit, then all of that goodwill will be there whenever you do need to, uh, to make a withdrawal in the future. So again, three things that I, I would suggest keeping in mind, rely on trusted sources of information, do what's best for your family and know that your kids will be okay, communicate and assume good intentions. Coming up after this quick break, Melissa Grello. Couture Candy PTBO offers customizable candy boxes, candy grams, and more, shipping coast to coast with local pickup and delivery available. We ordered candy boxes for the girls partway through quarantine to lift their spirits, and it worked. I love that you can customize and also add on non-candy items like hand cream, too. 
A lot of thought goes into the packaging from Couture Candy PTBO as well. The pretty appearance really makes you feel like you're being treated, never mind the sweetness inside. You can find Couture Candy PTBO on Instagram and Facebook or head to couturecandyptbo.ca for more info or to place an order. And P.S. If you're buying for me, please go with the Reese's Chocolate Box. Couture Candy PTBO, being kind is sweet. My special guest this week is Melissa Grello. She is a co-host of the hit talk show, The Social on CTV, co-founder of the gender-neutral children's clothing line, Mark, and also the mother of a wonderful little girl, among many other roles she plays. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. What a wonderful intro. Thank you so much for that. So Mel, you and I first met a few years ago, and it seems like we've kind of gone back and forth between me interviewing you, you interviewing me, but I'm going to be asking the questions today. And I want to start by asking, how have the months of COVID-19 been at your place? Probably like most households, an absolute roller coaster. Um, It's interesting because um, one of the topics that um, we were discussing recently on the social was, is 2020 the worst year ever or not? And, And I said... Depends what day you ask me, because I think like many households, there have been a lot of highs and there have been a lot of lows. Um, And there is now um, the matter of perspective, because we're months and months into this. Um, I think it started rough, I think, for a lot of parents and kids and families. Everybody was real scared of the unknown. And I think I was no different. Um, My anxiety that I've battled with for a long time really started to bubble up pretty heavily. And that's usually a signal that something's going on. And and I knew at the time exactly what was going on, which is we feel so out of control. So I think we started off in a bit of a rough patch, but I don't know. I feel like one of the lucky ones to be able to say five or now going into six months in, there's been the inevitable slowdown of life. And I think the perspective has allowed and the slowdown has allowed for a lot of reflection. So today if you're asking me today, I would say um, the pandemic has been a gift. I feel like I know. I know I'm lucky to be one of the people to say that. If you've lost somebody or you have a, a parent in a long-term care facility, I mean, you're not going to say these things. Um, but I've been, knock on wood, very, very fortunate. So today, um, it's it's been um, a, an, an interesting, eye-opening journey. And I would almost say thankful that we almost find ourselves in this situation. Now, Kate, if you ask me tomorrow, I might have a whole <laughs> different answer. But um, today I can say that my family has been resilient, has been really nimble in otherwise wild times. And how did the learning at home process go with Marquesa? And what is your plan for back to school? Well, people who know my background know that I was a teacher in my last life. And so I felt a far better equipped walking into that situation than I think most parents. Uh, and having said that, I was still like, oh, we're doing this now. And P.S., I'm qualified to teach grade seven and higher, not <laughs> SK. So um, not that I felt ill-equipped, but, you know, teaching a, a different grade than you've been um, instructed to or have an education in and your own child, anybody who's um, had a driving lesson from a parent, that's the situation you find yourself in. It's like somehow your patience is less. Somehow you end up in a screaming match within five minutes. Like somehow something that should be pretty straightforward and easy when it's between family members can be really challenging. Um, Having said all that, I 
think I fared pretty well. I feel good about how homeschooling went because um, it really challenged me um, to tap into that, you know, lesson planning Melissa again. And as any teacher knows, that's where you drive, your passion is driven into. It's trying to imagine and create something that is exciting and dynamic and creative and really um, brings the lesson to life. Like that's what all great teachers always try to do. And that takes a lot of energy. And so mm -hmm. I found myself exhausted because I was trying to find that, like I wanted to razzle dazzle Marquesa with her teacher mom. You know, I wanted her to be like, whoa, where'd that lady come from? And um, I think I succeeded at least for most of it. And I think it was only at the tail end that we both started to really putter out because I think there was a lot of burnout. I was probably a little ambitious in my expectations of what we could accomplish. And I'm very lucky again, because my daughter is, she's really sharp academically. Um, you know, uh, maybe because of the luxury of my background and where she's at, she's SK, but we were doing grade one and grade two work and she's in French immersion and I am bilingual and qualified to teach in French. I mean, it really is a perfect scenario on paper. And mm -hmm. I think we did lever. I think I leveraged a lot of my skills to to do really well. Um, I think it's just by the end, like all other parents, the pressures of not only homeschooling and caregiving and feeding, uh, but oh yeah, I'm working from home. So I have like an, an actual full-time job I'm getting paid for and I'm trying to do to the best of my ability. And I think by the end, um, I'm pretty sure we bailed out by mid-June uh, out of the <laughs> daily grind of the lessons and all of those things. But I would say I feel really happy with how the the better part of it went. And I asked my Marquesa uh, frequently, you know, do you miss school? Do you miss your teachers? And she still tells me today that she doesn't. I feel like that's got to be some kind of validation on how I did. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And you also did the pandemic puppy thing. How is that going? <laughs> um, it's great. I do not regret it for a second. And I think because... Um, I have been wanting a dog since we last uh, had a dog. We sadly lost our last Doberman um, three and a half years ago. And I, I'm a farm girl and many farm kids are just raised with animals as like the given. And so it was the first time that I had never had a pet, especially a dog in my life. And my husband, who was heartbroken from losing our first dog, which was his first pet ever in his life. I thought there was a good chance we were never, I was never going to convince him. So because of the circumstances, me working from home, being with Marquesa at home, um, and my husband on the other end of the spectrum, um, being busier than ever with his contracting and construction business, I haven't seen him less. And I think I made a pretty convincing argument that, hey, I'm the one holding down the fort at home. I'm doing a lot of stuff. And if, uh, you know, canine love is what I need to make it through a day, then guess what? That's what's happening. So I kind of, mm, no, I didn't kind of, I made the executive decision and just did it without a lot of input from him. So <laughs> it was rough go at the beginning for him, but sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to survive. And I... Um, didn't have to deal with any big issues with the puppy. I just had to deal with my husband <laughs> in <laughs> accepting that there was a new member to our family. So uh, yeah, the puppy is fantastic. 
And it's exactly what the doctor ordered because um, I'm not, I was not ever going to be cut out to be a stay at home parent. And I was never going to be cut out to be working from home. And then life happened and both were happening simultaneously. And um, Cleopatra has been the, the saving grace in making sure that we get out of the house, we get some fresh air, everybody's mm-hmm. bodies get moving, um, you know, that there isn't so much structure and predictability to your day, that she keeps things spontaneous, she keeps things fun. Um, it's giving my daughter responsibility. She's a great cuddler, as most Dobermans are. And um, she's been a wonderful addition to our family. And I'm pretty sure Ryan has turned around because um, I just see him, you know, sneaking cuddles from time to time. And that's a really far, <laughs> far way to have come from the very beginning. Let's move now to talking about filming the social from home. So what's that process like? And what do you find are the pros and cons compared to actually doing it in the studio? Oh my God, it's nothing like doing it in the studio. Um, working from home has been, uh, wow a complete shift in the way that I work, a complete shift in the way that we do the show. Um, First of all, the biggest uh, change is that you have dozens of people who have all of these individual, very important jobs when you're in studio from every single producer who's on the show and puts the show together to the studio uh, crew, which is your camera people, audio, lighting, hair, makeup, styling, everything. And now there's one person doing most of those jobs and that's me. So that has been a very steep learning curve. So now I'm doing uh, multiple jobs at once. And um, because I'm trying to, for the long haul, reclaim parts of my home for my family life and separate work as much as I possibly can, I'm finding that my physical space and mental space, they've got to align. So I've actually just found recently a little corner in my basement where I've been putting together a little home studio that is physically away from where the rest of the family is doing our living. And I find that mentally, that's already helping me a lot to be able to divide when I'm working from home and in work mode from, okay, being mom, being wife and doing, you know, domestic things because I think that part of the challenge for anybody who works at home, I'm sure is the lives that and roles that are all stepping on each other simultaneously. So the best that I can, and looking ahead to, to what might happen with schooling, I need to have dedicated space mentally and physically just for working at home to just focus on that job and try to do it to the best of my ability. And then to also be able to flip the switch when it's not work time anymore and be at home for myself, for my husband and for my daughter. How do you think TV will be changed after COVID-19? Do you think that there'll be more, you know, hosting from home and guests Skyping in instead of coming to the studio and that sort of thing? Or do you think networks are just going to be anxious to get things back to the way they were as soon as possible? I think what you're going to get is probably some of the best storytelling we've had in a long time. I think it's an interesting convergence that with the dawn of really good streaming services and in the era that many people are calling peak TV, I think that accessibility and streaming and being online has just been accelerated as the place to be watching your content, number one. But number two, I think the industry, um, because we've collectively as a world gone through this or are going through this together, stories 
intimacy, reality, and like, I mean, not Kardashian reality show. I'm talking about like real life reality, uh, things that matter, boiling things down to stories that are universal about struggle, about challenge, about resilience. You know, uh, those stories I think are going to really bubble up in terms of what they'll look like. Listen, uh, sets have been forever changed by uh, this pandemic. And so there's going to be a very real barrier to what can and cannot be done on set anymore. Whether you're talking about love scenes or people hugging and kissing, you know, there's a real just challenge to what you can even write. So I think that people who are putting together stories and scripts and shooting are going to have a real challenge to actually write around the restrictions that you will actually have on set and force more creative shooting, to be quite honest. If you have to fake a kiss and cut away before the kiss actually happens, I mean, think of what that does to your storytelling. So I think it's going to challenge people. But I, you know, when creative people cannot be held down, they'll just rise to the challenge. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're going to have better stories, real hard-hitting stories of overcoming this nonsense together. And um, even in terms of what it looks like, I think the audience is what we've learned, at least working from home in our show is we're all so much more forgiving of what something looks like. And the focus is much more on the content than just the aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I think people have become a lot more willing to be like, oh yeah, you're sitting in your kitchen. Cool. Oh, your kid's jumping into your shot. Cool. You're not, you don't have professional hair and makeup. Cool. And what that does do is really focus on what you're saying and the stories that you're telling and the content that is being presented. I want to move now to a quite heavy topic, but very timely, which is racism. And first, mm -hmm. I know that you talk about being of Filipino Portuguese descent. Now, do you identify as a person of color? I do. You do. And do you feel that that has impacted, well, I'm sure it has, but how do you feel that has impacted your life experiences? Do you have any, any sort of uh, story there? I have a lot of stories. I think the, the most simple way that I can boil it down to is um, anybody who is of mixed um, ethnicity knows uh, what I'll talk about here, which is the idea of never being able to fit into any one box. But that, as challenging as that is growing up, it also, I think, really develops a very deep sense of understanding what it like what it's like to not fit in or to not have a very clear place in life. And I think specifically with my situation, because um, my father is Portuguese and uh, is, is Caucasian, um, and seeing his world and how he operates, and then also uh, being raised by my mother, who is uh, Filipina, uh, with a very heavy accent, highly educated, but as a woman of color, has moved through the world in a very different way, and seeing how both of my parents were treated when I was a very young girl and understanding how the world works for, in some ways for some people and very much works against other people. I had a front row view to that with a Caucasian father and with a Filipino mother. And so I have a very unique um, take on what is happening in the world because I can see and empathize from both sides of the of the divide right now, right? I can understand why um, people who are not of color and are white or white passing um, can have real challenges in understanding just how challenging life is and how difficult the system is 
for people who are of color and specifically indigenous and black people. And so, um, and, and having the perspective of being multiracial, multiethnic, I think has given me a really unique way to sort of maybe bridge the discussions between sides that are not always um, hearing each other. And I think we're at a really critical time in the fight for equality that more than ever, we really need not only both sides to be hearing each other, but specifically one side finally listening and finally doing something to really alleviate the pain and suffering of everybody else. And and those everybody else are people of color. So I think my experience is, has been um, while challenging growing up, especially as a teenager and having identity issues, I think now as an adult, I'm like thankful that I've never really fit in anywhere and that it gives me a perspective to maybe find common ground with people who don't see eye to eye. You've posted and shared a wealth of allyship material on your social media channels. And I know as a white woman, I I try to do things that I think uh, make me an ally, but the whole idea of performative versus genuine allyship, what's the difference in your mind? And I know there are probably a lot of white white moms listening to this, uh, this mm-hmm. episode right now. How can we make sure that what we're doing is genuine? I think it's really... Um walking the walk and not just talking the talk. I think talk is definitely important. And I think conversations are important and certainly reading is important and all of those things, especially when you're walking into a space that maybe you've never been in before. And maybe you're one of those people who are like, you know, it's, it's time to actually um, learn and do something. And I think the performance part of it is to really share to everybody around you that you are on board with this fight for equality and to be very vocal and take a position. I don't know that decades and decades of silence, especially from those who historically have held power, that's actually helped anybody. And I think the the performative part of it has gotten a little bit of bad rap because it sounds like maybe that's where it's ending. And if that is where your activism ends is just sort of talking about it or sharing and posting, obviously we've got to push through to the next part, which is, all right, you've said you're on board. You've said you're in, in this fight. You've said you want to make a difference. Wonderful. Now, the hardest part is to really put that into action. I, I think we've read a lot of books. Hopefully, a lot of people have been reading a lot. Hopefully, people have been listening to people more than ever. The question is tangible changes in your everyday life. And that is much more private. That is not necessarily something that people are going to be posting about all the time. Or maybe if they are, then that's a great thing. But I know I've been speaking on my social media feeds, I think, to particularly a lot of parents. And if you are a white parent or a white passing parent, then you need to also, for your growth and for equality for all, you also need to make sure that you are doing something real for the sake of your child and for the sake of that next generation. It's never been more vital to actually take the talk and make it into a walk. And so what is the difference? It's, are you looking at your children's shows that they're watching and whose stories are being told, whose stories aren't being told, through what lens? Is your child's library 
diverse or are they all, um, you know, protagonists who are white and maybe have sidekicks who are people of color? Or are you actually starting to reframe your life and your child's life to, to understand that there are other people who have vivid, full lives in your children's books and it's not just white characters? So are you diversifying your children's libraries? Are you actually reaching out to other people or to people of color and other families who don't look like yours? And are you reaching out and really actively trying to make a change in who you are surrounding yourself with and whose stories you listen to and hear and experience? Um, you know, like there's real tangible stuff and that's not as easy to capture in an Instagram post. And that takes a lot more bravery and hard work uh, than just just reading a book. So the difference for me is, sure, shout it from the mountaintops because people of color need to know who's on their side. But I had posted a while ago that, you know, an apology um, without action is just manipulation. And so you're the one who has to sleep at night to say, am I actually doing something that's making a tangible difference in my life and more importantly in your child's life if you do have a child? Because um, that's where the real change is going to happen is actual understanding of the power that you hold and the privilege that you hold and how much of that power and privilege are you willing to give up for the sake of someone else's life. That, that is where the rubber hits the road. And that is not something that's going to take a day or a week or a minute. It's going to take the rest of our lives. I'm going to lighten things up a little bit now with a question from Haley on Instagram, and she happens to be a teacher, and she wanted me to ask you, what made you decide to change careers and leave the classroom? A lot of things happened. I think that uh, I have always had a, a deep love for news um, and reading and writing. I had been a news junkie from a very young age out of necessity because my father in particular um, did not have a very good handle on the English language. And so part of our nighttime ritual was for my sister and I get the newspaper and read the top headlines to my father. And that was both, it was twofold in its goals was A, for my father to get the news of the day. Um, in He wasn't as adept at reading English at that time. And so that allowed him to hear the news um, from his daughters, but it was also, he thought, a way for us to practice our reading. So it really did achieve both of those goals because that's where my, I think, love for news and headlines and world politics and things of that nature was born. And if I'm really truthful with myself, my news um, obsession never left. I just never considered it a possible career for whatever reason. And I had been, I guess, born into teaching in the sense that my father, um, he's a world-renowned horse uh, master, and and I was teaching riding lessons when I started. When I was just 12 years old with, when I got my first student. And so teaching was a very natural, natural evolution in my life coming from my father. Um, but the switch happened with a bunch of things that happened at the same time. And it was a long-term relationship that was ending uh, that was causing me to do a lot of soul searching in my life. It was leaving teaching to begin my master's in education and hitting a, a, a significant walls in that uh, sh transition 
out of teaching and going back into school and not get quite getting what I had wanted out of that, at least in those early stages. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, and moving out of my house and a lot of things happened where it just made me say, is this it? Because anybody who knows they've got a passion or a fire in their belly, when you really let yourself sort of sit with that, um, and if you let your creativity and your mind run wild, you almost get, at least at that age too, I think I was probably 25 or 26, you go, oh my gosh, this is the time to seize it. And I really felt like I had a very, this window that had opened up to me to really pursue this. And then finally, it was a, um, a business coach, which I guess these days, in retrospect, really was a life coach, although his, his title was business coach. Um, and ultimately, working with him for six months allowed me to explore a lot. He's a psychologist by training. And so there was a lot of deep therapy inadvertently that was involved in that. And I think that there was just a newfound passion for life that came out of those sessions. And um, eventually on my own determined that journalism was a place where my current skill set as a teacher was still highly applicable and, and, and highly salient. And so I did what I, I think a couple of wild moves at the time. And that was, I quit my master's program. My mother flipped out. She flipped <laughs> out. She's Filipino and education is the only currency that they like to, to operate with. Right. And so she just flipped out, which I anticipated, but I just said, I have to do this. And, um, Luckily, had a friend who worked as a uh, a news director at a station, actually a CTV affiliate in Montreal. It's CFCF. So I spent a short summer um, in the newsroom, and I thought, if this is really going to get me going, I'm going to know quickly. And I was hooked. So within days of being in that newsroom, I had already been online, um, hooking up with. Um, um, a school to figure out how I was going to get my journalism diploma and all of these things. And it happened fast. And my dad has a saying, and it's when you're on the right path, all the angels and saints will help you. And in that moment, it was like clarity. And I've never turned back. And ultimately, it exercises so many of the same muscles, um, but with a whole new sense of creativity um, that I never had up to that point in my career. So uh, it was the best quitting was the best decision I ever made. Okay. And I know you had various experiences leading up to the social. And now if I'm, if I'm correct, you're going into season eight. And so I'm yeah. wondering how you think the show has evolved over the first seven seasons. I think like any relationship, which is what we have with our viewers, it has changed significantly over all these seasons as it should and because the hosts, we as the hosts are humans and our lives have changed over all these years. And so inevitably the show has drastically changed. And I think now if I were to compare where we were in the earliest days to now getting ready to launch season eight, we've matured, uh, we've evolved, we've all collectively and individually been through so many things which just informs how we even talk on the show with one another and the stories we have to tell. And I think that um, really connecting on such a deep level with our viewers 
that started in season one, but it was like a new friendship, right? There's still so much to learn about one another and you're nervous and you maybe are hesitant to go into deeper stuff because you're still just trying to establish a rapport and a relationship. But with any good relationships, there's going to be ups and downs, but ultimately you'll be closer in the end for it. And I think that's what we've had on our show. We are not trying to please the world. We are not trying to have easy discussions. We're actually trying to do the opposite. And I feel like we have a fearlessness and a bravery in our show today uh, because we all know each other so well. And I'm talking mm -hmm. the collective we with our audience and with the hosts. We're braver and we, we have established trust with our viewers and they know us so well. So it's now time, if you're in a good relationship, it shouldn't just make you happy. It should also challenge you. It should make you grow. It can make you angry some days. It can make you sad some days. And that is where our show has gone. We've gone to all the places that full, deep relationships should go. And yeah, we've had some pretty hard times together with our viewers, but ultimately, um, we're all ride or dies. And I think we're not here, like I said, to placate. We are here to challenge and to grow. And I think, thankfully, I think we've really done a whole lot of that um, over the full seven seasons so far. You also have a great side hustle with your children's clothing line called Mark. Is there anything new there or any other new projects or partnerships or anything you'd like to share before we go? The timing is great because, uh, yes, my business partner, Shana Haddon, and I, um, we started this both when we had no children, and now we both have growing children. And I think the natural progression was to have our clothing line grow along with our children. And my daughter, who is six, and uh, her son, who is going on to three, you know, there is an actual selfish need to figure out clothing for uh, my kid, uh, who is starting to age out of Mark as it exists today. So we are currently in our planning phases to um, enlarge um, our range, our age range and size range for our kids. We've always had very healthy um, uh, discussions with our amazing customers and, and clients about offering adult sizes, which again, is never what we had set out to do, but it is something that we are finally exploring so we are growing in more ways than one. And um, I'm really, really excited that um, it has been a reflection of our real lives, which is adapting to real life needs with our kids. So I think um, many parents can, can grow with us as their kids are growing with us. Can you name one thing that you miss the most or that you're most looking forward to when things return to quote unquote normal? <laughs> um, it might be... Uh, superficial, but I don't care. Uh, hair, makeup, and wardrobe. Mm -hmm. Period. End of story. Oh, fair enough. I mean, I just do little guest <laughs> segments here and there, and I still miss being able to get hair touched up and all that. I don't know how you do it with your with your job every day. Okay, the final question that I always ask my guests is: Do you have a this mom loves some sort of favorite thing to recommend? Maybe a book that you read, an app you like, a beauty product, anything goes. There's so many. Um, there's I, I'm struggling because they're we've all um, become so self sufficient. I think in this pandemic, and so you found all these crazy great hacks. And so I will say, um, in line with with my current um, 
I guess, period of learning and growth. I would say This Mom Loves, the brand new children's book, Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram X. Kendi, also author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. And if you really are trying to bridge the gap between how do you go and challenge and be an anti-racist and an activist for equality, and, and how do you start to also plant those seeds in even very, very little children? Uh, it's a very big concept for little, little children, but there is a way. And so This Mom Loves Anti-Racist Baby as a great children's book to introduce um, anti-racism in little children's lives. I will have all the links in the show notes to where everyone can find Melissa Grello and the social and Mark so that, um, so that everybody can get all caught up and support those projects. Thank you, Melissa Grello, so much for being here with me today. Thank you. Great questions and really great talking to you. And that is a wrap for this episode of This Mom Loves. You can find everything from this episode, the book recommendations, the back to school tips, where to find Melissa and the social and Mark designs all at the show notes, thismomloves.ca slash podcasts and click on episode 53. I would like to thank my amazing sound editor, Lucas Sound. You can look him up or reach out to me if you need any information on sound editing. And I would also love if you could rate or review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It's such a quick way to make a real difference as those ratings and reviews really do add up and determine who sees and listens to the podcast. So even an Apple podcast, just give it some stars. Five would be great, but however many you feel it deserves or any other um, program that you use, there's usually a way to rate or even just leave a really quick review means a lot to me. And please stay tuned because there is another great episode of This Mom Loves coming soon. Until then, take care.